This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back. In this very exciting episode, we have someone who truly enjoys their craft. He's someone that always makes his guests feel at ease and always makes them look like the star. We have Dave Bittner, producer and host of the CyberWire podcast. We're very excited to keep on creating content. Please check out our, our website at hackervalley.studio and also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash hackervalleystudio. Special shout out to our two new patrons. We have Kaylee Higginson and also Renee from RSF Consulting. And without further ado, let's get to the show. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the virtual studio still. We have a truly special guest. You probably know his voice. You've heard him somewhere, maybe even met him in person. We have Dave Bittner. He is the producer and host of the CyberWire Hacking Humans, Caveat, Recorded Future, and Grumpy Old Geeks podcast. Uh, such a pleasure to have you on the show, Dave. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Dave, we did a, a podcast swap. I was just on the CyberWire. I think that episode will be coming out here soon. Thank you so much for hopping on. It's truly a pleasure for us because we are really, really focused on developing our craft, developing our ability to present good stories to our listeners, and we want to bring them the, the best possible versions of ourselves. Uh, for people that don't know who you are just yet, if you could give us a little bit of your background and what you're doing today, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, how far back would you like me to go? Where, where shall I begin? Let's go way back. When did your interest <laughs> in radio and you know, broadcasting begin? Oh, wow. So way back, I have actually been doing professional voiceover work since I was about eight years old. Wow. Um, yeah. So I was, I happened to be one of those kids who, for whatever reason, could read and sound like I wasn't reading. And I had, I think my parents had a friend who worked at the local PBS station. Uh, we're in Maryland here. So it was Maryland Public Television. And my recollection is that that person was at our house for a summer barbecue or something, and and I was doing something, probably putting on a puppet show or something like that. And this friend said to my folks, you know, uh, your child can, can do something a little unusual. Maybe, you know, if, if he's interested, uh, we could we have work for him. And so I started doing that and did some TV stuff and some commercials and, and those sorts of things when I was little. And then that took me through school and high school, and I did a lot of theater. I was very much into electronics. I was among that first wave of folks who were into home computers. Uh, my first computer was the TRS-80 in the basement of my parents' home. You know, did all the things with that, the usual stuff, a lot of dialing up BBSs and a little bit of phone freaking, that sort of stuff. Eventually went off to college. And in the meantime, I'd still been doing a lot of performing. Musical theater was my thing. So I was always comfortable in, in front of a group of people. Went off to college, started out as a vocal music major. I was going to be a singer. And uh, mm. about midway through, I was at the University of Maryland, I switched to RTVF, which is radio, television, and film, and uh, got a job working on the campus TV station, 
and kind of never looked back. When I came out of college, that was right when the first wave of digital video, desktop digital video, became possible. So those early Macintoshes where you could, for let's say $50,000, you could plug hardware into that machine and do what it used to take half a million dollars to do in a video editing suite. So me and a couple of friends, you know, pooled our resources and, and racked up the money on our credit cards and opened a company and really rode that wave of digital video. I did that for 20 years, along with my wife and another business partner. It was a company called Pixel Workshop. We had a good amount of success doing that. And then that business started to change. And I noticed that it was harder to stay in business as a small video production shop. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The fact that everyone's carrying around a 4K camera in their pocket now <laughs> yeah. uh, had something to do with it. Yep. So a friend of mine who'd been a client of mine called me up one day and he said, listen, I, I work for a cybersecurity company and we're thinking about hiring someone who does what you do. I would love to have you come in and talk about this position. And I said to that person, well, you know, I have a job. I have a company. I'm good. He said, I know, but let's let's talk about it. So I did go in and had a conversation with my wife and we decided it was a good time to get all of our eggs out of the same basket. So I joined a cybersecurity company in Baltimore. And when I joined, they were already doing the CyberWire as a daily newsletter. It had started as a daily intelligence briefing for the company internally. And they decided that they were going to share it uh, with the rest of the world. The idea being that a, a more informed community is a safer community. So they were already doing that. And when I joined the team, I suggested that we start a podcast. And they said, that sounds like a great idea. What's a podcast? And <laughs> so the original idea was we were just going to take the CyberWire daily briefing and we were going to just read that. I'd, I'd just read it and uh, out it would go. And then as these things sort of happen, it kind of snowballed from there. And someone said, boy, wouldn't it be great to have guests on the show? And wouldn't it be great to have you know people we partner with who can be regular guests on the show? And so it grew from there. Eventually, our team got spun off and the CyberWire became its own company. And that was just about four years ago. And we've really grown from there. So we have, uh, of course, the CyberWire Daily Podcast. We still do our daily news brief, which you can get via email or on our website. And then we've added some new shows. I co-host Hacking Humans. I co-host uh, the Caveat Podcast. I guest on the Grumpy Old Geeks Podcast. I host the Recorded Future podcast for them. We They uh, hire us to help them produce that show, so I'm the host for that. And I think that's it. I think I'm up to, I do about 10 shows a week, so it keeps me pretty busy, and uh, that's my story. I know that's, that's a lot, so uh, I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. Any questions. That's incredible. That 10 shows a week, that's amazing, and you never get tired of podcasting. Uh, you know, I, I, well, look, there are days when, <laughs> when, when, when I just want to stay in bed, but I think we all have those days more so than ever. I think, you know, now that we're all sort of dealing with the trauma of what we're going through with this pandemic. But for me, what's happened is it's really turned out to be this amazing mix of things that I'd been working on through most of my life. It, it I have been doing performing, I've been doing voiceover. And I've had this interest in tech. So I did have to get up to speed on a lot of the specifics of cybersecurity in particular. But I, I, would had, I definitely had an above average knowledge of 
computer networking and computers and how computers work and the internet and all of that having come up uh, through the ranks when all of that stuff was really taking form. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to my first question. What is your model for assimilating information about cybersecurity? Let's say you're going to have a malware analyst on your show. How do you get to the point where you're able to ask those questions intelligently, be able to serve your listeners while also being able to have a good conversation with your guests? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's been a journey for me. Like I said, when I first started off, I, I really didn't know a whole lot. And so I was relying on my team to get me up to speed on the interviews that I would have. You know, we have writers and analysts here on staff. And so if I was interviewing someone, let's say I was interviewing someone about a, a bit of uh, research that they put out. I, of course, would read the research, but then I would go meet with one of the other folks on staff and say, okay, help me understand this. Explain this to me. I don't understand. What does this mean? What does this word mean? What's going on here? And they would help me understand, help me come up with my list of questions so that when I did that interview, I would at least know that I sounded a little bit like what I knew what was going on. <laughs> Since then, over time, as these things happen, when you're doing it every day the way I am and you're talking to people every day, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on what's going on, certainly enough to ask intelligent questions. But I think a really important realization for me, and, and this happened somewhere along the lines, I'd say the first nine months or so, is that I realized that it's not my job to be the expert on this stuff. It's my job to talk to the experts about this stuff. So I'm playing the part, I, I'm taking the place of the person out in the audience who has these questions. It's my job to represent them with the expert to ask the questions that the audience members want to know about. So I think that's a really important distinction because that helps me get my ego out of the way of not asking a dumb question or not worrying about asking a dumb question or asking a question like we've all heard people who ask questions, but they're really they're really just kind of questions to show off how smart they are, how much they know about things. Mm -hmm. And I really mm -hmm. try to avoid doing that because I, I don't think that helps anyone. And I try to keep in mind that we have a wide variety of listeners. We have everyone from seasoned professionals who've been doing this for decades, but we have a lot of students who are listening as well. So I want to make sure that I'm covering them so they're getting the information they need. Wow. That's that's actually a really good point is, you know, you are asking the questions, especially that I have on my mind when I'm listening to a podcast like The CyberWire. And I think that's great for allowing someone to really show off their personal or company brand and really make it so that they're the expert when you're asking these questions. Yep. What what advice would you give anyone and what advice have you taken over the years that really helped you to develop your personal brand and get to the point to where you're asking experts these types of questions? Well, you know, I have folks that I look up to and folks that I admire just from being a host and I think the best of the best was really Johnny Carson. And for this reason, Johnny Carson looked at it as being his job to make his guests look as good as possible, right? It wasn't about him getting the laugh or him being the smartest person in the room. He was there to set his guests up to be their best. 
it's funny when when it's quite common for a guest on our show to say something like, gosh, I was really nervous or how did that go or, you know, something like that. And I tell them, I say, listen, you know, we're, we're going to edit this. It's our job to make you sound as good as possible. And we are really good at our job. So you're in good hands and we're going to make you sound your best. Now, my job in the middle of an interview is to make someone as comfortable as possible, to put them at ease, to establish a connection and a rapport with them so that it sounds like we're just having a conversation. Because if I'm doing my job right, in a way, we are. I'm not always successful at that. Sometimes there are people who, you know, you just can't connect with, but it's really something I strive for. And when it happens, there's nothing like it. It's it's a real kick to be able to end an interview and feel like you're really connected with someone and, you know, got a bunch of really good information that you're going to be able to share with people. So we've only been at this for about a year, but... You know, we, Ron and I, we go to conferences all the time and we run into people that listen to the show. And when they run into us, it's almost like they they know us, like they know us from some other life. But we have such terrible memories that we don't know who they are. And it's such a a weird feeling. I'd love to hear a a good story that you've had because you guys have tremendous amount of fans, I'm sure. Tremendous amount of listeners. I'd love to hear a good story uh, about a a, a listener running. Yeah, it's true. And it's a funny thing being well known for something in a very narrow band of the world. You know, like if I go to when I go to RSA or I go to Black Hat or something like that, that's pretty much the only place where people recognize me, you know, to see my name tag or something. I did have a funny thing happen once. I was at a conference and I was in line for lunch and it was one of those buffet lines where they have the table down the middle and there are people going down either side, you know, taking the food and putting it on their plates. And I was having a conversation with the person next to me who happened to be someone that I knew. And I saw across the table going down the line as I was talking to this person I knew, this this person who I didn't know, uh, they sort of perked up and I saw their eyes widen. And I saw them like there was this dawning of of recognition and I could see the gears <laughs> turning like there's I recognize something. I'm not sure what it is and I don't know where it's from. And I saw them look at me and it took a couple seconds. Then I saw them go, ah, oh. <laughs> they looked at my name tag. Right. So they heard my voice, didn't know where, you know, couldn't make the connection at first because they, you know, you don't expect to see me in person. Right. That, that's another thing I get a lot is, um, wow, it's really weird to see you in person or it's really strange to talk to you in person. Yeah. Um, I'll share another one that I love. This was actually at RSA this year and uh, someone came up who was a regular listener of the show and they, they said hello. They wanted to you know get a picture, which is always great fun. And this person said, this is going to be so great because I'm going to be able to tell my son that I met you and I'm going to be able to show him this picture. He, he, we listen to the show together. You know, I, I drive him to uh-huh. school in the morning and um, we listen together. So it's something we have in common. And he's, it's going to be just so exciting for him that I got to meet you in person. And I said, well, why don't you, I said, get out your phone, you know, let's record something. I'll record a little personal video for your son. And then you can take that back home to him. And so we did that. And it was just a little, you know, hey, you know, how you doing? I met your dad. You know, thanks for listening. You know, good luck with uh, your studies and, and that sort of thing. So to be able to do something like that, that, you know, literally takes two minutes of my time, but to make someone happy, to, to give someone a little boost in their day, that's really a great thing to be able to do. So it's a great, it's a privilege to be in a position to do that. That's, that's great that. to hear. 
One of the things that I'm always curious about, listening to podcast hosts, I'm sure people wonder the same about Chris and I, but how did you fall into security? And have you ever been a practitioner? Have you ever found yourself wanting to tinker more after speaking to your guests about maybe a specific topic or a piece of technology and security? You know, as I said, my path to security was indirect. And I have, I've, it's funny, I've, I guess my career, it's been non-traditional, right? Like I did not go to school to study security. I do not have any security certifications or anything like that. But coming up with computers when computers were new and learning along the way as everyone else did, I had a pretty good understanding of how things worked. Running my own company, a company that was a tech company, gave me a good idea of, you know, I was the guy who had to connect all the computers together. I had to do the networking. I had to figure out how the printers worked. I had to get them all connected to the internet and figure out how to make all that work and share that and make all of that safe. So I learned a lot of that on the job. And then when I joined the CyberWire, that was a whole nother round of learning for me. And I'd say it probably took me about a year to get to the point where I felt like I was really up to speed with things. But you know, it's one of the things I love about this job is that every day I am still learning new things. It is super exciting when I'm talking to someone and they they share something with me that I haven't either I haven't thought of or I haven't heard about or they'll they'll present something in a new way that makes me go, "Wow, I that that's a really interesting way to think about that." So that endless intellectual stimulation is really uh, something that I love and one of the great parts of my job. I would kick myself if I didn't mention some of the videos you guys produce. Most recently, the the COVID-19 <laughs> video that you did, <laughs> right. absolutely hilarious. I, I really hope that thing goes viral. It, it's hilarious for those that haven't seen it yet. Just just check it out. And then even you. something as simple as the, the password video. Right. I thought it was uh, hilarious. Dave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and that's taking advantage of, you know, my experience back in the video editing world. And also as a performer, you know, I'm kind of able to to jack of all trades those and, and also just, I, you know, I'm a student of comedy. And so they're just great fun to do, sort of crank them out and, and people seem to like them a lot. What would you say is your inspiration for, for your particular brand of comedy? Oh, goodness. Well, I grew up on a mix of The Muppet Show, first first Sesame Street. So The Muppets on Sesame Street really taught me a, a specific subversive type of humor, right? And I love that kind of humor. A, a dash of uh, Monty Python thrown in there. I'd say physical humor in my middle school years. I watched a lot of Benny Hill and um, Mr. Bean, those kinds of things. So yeah, a lot of old school stuff. These days, I, I love watching old old comedy routines, old talk shows, you know, those sorts of things. I, I, I'm fascinated by the crafting of a joke. I love to write a good joke. The, the, the artistry of that, it's, it's like a haiku, you know, the, you, when you put together a, a good joke and you know it and, and it lands. There's something really satisfying about that. The great thing about that I love about comedy is especially when you are teaching somebody something and you can use comedy, it just ingrains it so much more in their brains. I remember we had a 
a lawyer come teach us about harassment and, you know, managing within the law. And it was all about law. But he was pretty much a stand up comedian and he had me laughing the entire time. But I would say I remember more from that, uh, that course than I did any of my undergrad because it was it, it ingrained in my brain fr- from that comedy. Would you say that, you know, we should be using comedy more to train our practitioners, to train our professionals in today's climate? I would love to see that. I think comedy is disarming, right? It, it breaks down your barriers, um, the bubble that you have around yourself. And I would love to see us using that rather than fear to teach people. Because I think it's more effective, like like you say, it's it's memorable. I believe you're more likely to learn something when you're enjoying yourself, when you're engaged because you're feeling good things, rather than being engaged because of scary things. And you know, so many of the messages we hear in cybersecurity have to do with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, I I, I think I think there's a real hunger for humor, and the folks who can do that successfully you really see they, they get a lot of traction with those messages because they're few and far between, I think. My, my vote is for you. It sounds like you have the comedy background. You have the, <laughs> the singing background. You're our guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just need a, uh, gosh, what do I need? I need, uh, I need a writing team. I need more time. I need, uh, I, need, I need to not be doing 10 shows a week. Uh, Chris but and I will as help you can you. tell, I, I do enjoy it. I mean, it is, it is great fun. It, it's a nice little break from the routine to be able to do that kind of stuff. So, yeah, thanks for the kind words. <laughs> that always makes me think of delivering content and, you know, working on your delivery. If your delivery is great, kind of like the story that Chris was just describing, then it's going to be so much easier for someone to receive your message. What kind of things do you think about like before talking to your guests and before interacting with the community? Because you have such a reach. I'm sure you put a lot more thought into your messages. Well, there's an old saying back from my days in video and broadcasting, people notice good video and bad audio, right? So if your audio is good, nobody's going to notice it because that's the way it should be. But if your audio is bad, then that can distract from your message. So we make it a point to try to not have that happen. You know, we, we strive for a very high, consistent quality to our shows technically. We try to do that with our guests as well. Uh, on our daily podcast, that's not always possible because of the velocity that we're running at, you know, getting people, the interviews lined up and so on and so forth. You, you can't always count on somebody having their own high quality microphone. So sometimes you have to make the best of what you've got. Sometimes people just have to call in on a, on a landline or on their cell phone or, or whatever. But I think you don't want to have the technical quality of your audio be a distraction. I also think you really need to be respectful of people's time. One of the things we hear from our listeners is they really appreciate that we stay concise. We stay to a certain length. Our podcast is right around 20 minutes every day. And that is a self-imposed restriction we put on ourselves for discipline. One of the things about podcasts is because you're not feel, filling, uh, you're not fitting into a broadcast schedule, the show can be as long as you want it to be. And I think we all know shows, we all love shows that just they'll run 
sometimes they'll run 45 minutes, sometimes they'll run three hours, right? Right. And it's hard to plan your day around that. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, particularly if you're doing a commute. And, and you know, shows will start off and people say, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How's the weather? The weather's great. How's your kids? It's great. How's your dog? It's great. You know, and, you, and you're sitting there in the audience going, please just get to the, please get to the content. I, I you know, I love you guys or, and, or you gals or whoever. And I just want to just get to the point. So for us, that's really been, we believe, a, distingu- a distinguishing factor that people know what they're going to get from us. It's going to be a certain quality. It's going to be a certain length. It's going to be a certain type of content. And uh, so they can rely on us to deliver that to them, you know, day after day. Right. Speaking of quality, would you say you were born with your velvety smooth voice or is that something you worked over, over oh my a gosh. lifetime? <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> I don't believe I have a velvety smooth voice. Now, <laughs> here, when I, before I was doing the Cyberwire, when I was in the, again, in the video and broadcast business, it was very common for me to do voiceovers for my clients. Let's say I was producing a, you know, a corporate video for someone. And at the very least, I would usually put myself in as just the scratch track, you know, the rough audio for the narration or whatever that we could use for timing and so on and so forth, because I was capable of doing it and it would save everybody time and money and 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 so on. So some people would say, oh, this is great. We're just going to use you as the voiceover and we'll continue using that. But the number one comment I got when people didn't want to use me was, no, it's way too nasally. Way too nasally. What? Really? Yeah. 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 Now, I will say that I do think that I have gotten better at my craft as I've been doing it. I've certainly gotten better at using the microphone as sort of a musical instrument. And uh, I'll say a big influence on me growing up was listening to the old Bill Cosby albums right? Back when Bill Cosby was still funny. And because he would use the microphone for great effect. And so for me, I try to do that in our shows where, you know, I'll say, you know, I don't know, uh, hey, everybody, the sky is blue, but we all know it's raining, you know, like or just by, <laughs> by adjusting the distance between myself and the microphone, which changes the amount of intimacy you have, using it as a, a bit of a musical instrument, that's something I feel like I have gotten better at. I've gotten better at modulating the volume of my voice. I've, I've always had good diction. So I think that came from a lot from the classical music training that I did when I was studying that sort of stuff. So that was never a real issue. I've gotten a lot better at reading complex <laughs> scripts with crazy words. I'll share one thing that that is fun. And by fun, I mean sometimes frustrating. I think a lot of times when people name their vulnerabilities name or name threat groups or name types of malware, they don't consider that there's someone out there in the world who's actually going to have to pronounce that name. Right. And sometimes that person is me. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I am among the first people who have to say that word. So it's not like I can go to YouTube and find somebody who did a presentation last year at Black Hat where they pronounced the name of Cozy Bear or, you know, something like that or, you know, Lazarus um, group. Right, right. Um, 
And then you'll get in these debates where people will say, you know, how do you pronounce this? Um, Petya or not Petya? Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so that's always fun. And we try to settle on it. it, Nothing else consistency on the way that we say things. We sort of have our in-house style for how we pronounce things. But honestly, sometimes your guess is as good as mine. So we get this question all the time, and I'm sure you do. People are always asking, like, how do I get into podcasting? What advice do you have? Things like that. What advice would you have for people that are out there that want to start doing what we do, that want to get their content out there? They want their voice to be heard. Maybe they want to create a platform for other people to be on their show and be able to share their stories with the world. What advice would you have for them? Well, I I think, first of all, you should absolutely do it. I think the more voices we have out there in the world, the better people sharing their opinions. So I I think you should absolutely do it. That said, there are a few things that I've learned along the way in terms of making sure that your podcast is going to have legs. There's a thing out there that you guys have probably heard of called Podfade, which is where most podcasts just sort of fade away after a few episodes. And it seems as though that number is around six. People Mm -hmm get six episodes out, and then they realize that they don't really have much else to talk about. (laughs) Or or, this is harder than I thought it was, or this is going to take more time than I thought it would, or, or all those reasons. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast, I would recommend plotting out your first 20 or so episodes. Write it down. What are you going to talk about on your first 20 shows? And if that's easy, then you're probably on to something. If you get to 10 and you don't know what else you're going to fill the other 10 with, maybe you need to broaden the scope of the things you're going to talk about. Maybe you need to consider casting a wider net. But doing that before you get going, I think, is a really good exercise to make sure that you're onto something that might actually have legs. I think that's perfect advice. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show from the bottom of our hearts. We know you're super busy. You're doing 10 shows a week, but you still found <laughs> the time to be on our show. Uh, no. For the folks that want to keep up with you, want to keep up with all the shows that you're doing, what are the some of the easiest ways that people can do that? Uh, the best thing to do is just go to thecyberwire.com and you can find everything we do there. I'm on Twitter. It's at Bittner, B-I-T-T-N-E-R. Those are probably the two easiest ways to uh, keep track of me. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dave. And we'll see everybody next time.